Good morning. How is everyone? Awesome. Welcome to FCQ. My name is Mike Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. And we are glad that you are here with us. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10. If you don't have one with you, there should be a black card back underneath the seat around you. You're more than welcome to grab one of those. We'll be in Mark chapter 10 today on the black hardbacks. I think it's page 846. We have been walking through the Gospel of Mark, and we will continue to do that today in uh, chapter 10 as we finish off the chapter. After this morning, all we'll have left in the Gospel of Mark is the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, so we'll start next week with uh, the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, and we'll go from there. And so we have made some progress in Mark, and we've still got the, the big finish to uh, look at to study together, so I'm excited. Um, before we jump into the message today, let me remind you, we are in the middle of a school supplies drive, and so we're kind of blitz attacking it this year. We only have two Sundays to raise funds and or supplies today and next Sunday. So for some of you, this might be the first you're hearing of it, and so you've got one week. Um, there are two ways that you can contribute. Uh, we pride ourselves on doing this every year at the church. You can give money, and the money will go to East Fort Bend Human Needs, and they will actually put together backpacks and school supplies and give them to children in need. Or you can actually go out, uh, Operation Backpack, I think it is, with YMCA we're partnering with, uh, and there's a list of supplies, and you go out and you buy a backpack, and you write an encouraging note, put it in there, and then you fill it with the supplies. I actually think that's probably maybe the better of the two options. Uh, it's a lot of fun. If you have a family, let me encourage you, go with the family. Right? Make an afternoon out of it. Let your kids know why you're buying the backpack, what's it going towards, those kind of things. Lindsay and I went out uh, went shopping. I would warn you, if your uh, significant other is a teacher, <coughs> they get into the school supply shopping a little bit more. So this is our contribution. It's like 65 pounds. Um, <laughs> I'm hoping she put a check in here for the kids' medical bills. <laughs> some, some back problems. So um, you'll notice in the hallway there's some more backpacks out there as well. Some people have started to bring those in. Um, so let me know if you need more information about that, and I can help you with that. Um, but just know that last week is our last week to be able to collect that before the school season starts and to help out um, some families that are in need in our area. Okay, so Mark chapter 10 is where we are. We're going to pick it up in verse 32 this morning. We'll finish off the chapter. So verse 32 through 52. I'll remind you, last week we read the story of the rich young ruler. There's this man who owned a lot of land and he came to Jesus. And Jesus made this very strict requirement for him to follow him. He said, sell all of your possessions and come follow me. The man went away sad. And so it's on the heels of that story that we read this in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. 
And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus, and many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, and he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So here at the end of chapter 10, we get three separate kind of stories that go together, okay? It starts with this passion prediction, okay? Jesus, we've seen in Mark, has already twice predicted his death. Twice already, he's told the disciples, we're going to Jerusalem. And here we're told they're on their way up to Jerusalem. It's literally going up. You would travel up to get to Jerusalem. It's on a, a mountain. We're going up to Jerusalem. And for the third time, Jesus says, what's going to happen there is I'm going to be killed. And then I'm going to resurrect from the grave. And then you have James and John who ask Jesus for these positions of greatness. Their question lets us know that they misunderstood the prediction. That they misunderstand Jesus' kingdom mission in the world. It's not the last time the disciples will mess up, and it's for sure not the first time they've messed up in Mark. Um, this is our last passion prediction, so the third one is the last. We'll be in Jerusalem to, uh, next Sunday in, in Mark 11. Um, the disciples have messed up and will still mess up. No worries. Okay, we'll get to see this again as we go on. And then we get one more last, so it's the last passion prediction. This is also the last healing in the Gospel of Mark this blind man um, on, on the way to Jerusalem at Jericho. And there are a lot of things that this blind man perhaps has to teach us. So we'll go through each of these three sections one by one and look at uh, perhaps what the, the Lord is trying to speak to us today uh, in Sugarland, Texas. So first we start with the passion prediction, okay? Out of the three passion predictions, this one is by far the most specific. You'll see Jesus saying, right, they're going to spit on me and they're going to flog me. I'm going to be turned over to the chief priest and the elders. They'll turn me over to the Gentiles. Um, in Mark's gospel and in the gospels as a whole, Jesus goes to Jerusalem with a purpose. He knows he's going to die. Sometimes people ask this question. Did Jesus know he was going to die when he made that journey to Jerusalem? If he were buying airplane tickets, was he going to buy uh, a one-way trip? <coughs> or did he get surprised in Jerusalem? Did he go every year at Passover and perhaps not know that this was going to be the year that it was? In the Gospels, though, it's written very clearly. Jesus knew exactly what his vocation was. He went to Jerusalem knowing the fate that was going to meet him and knowing that that was his vocation as the king. That was how he was going to exercise his kingly power. Now, again, the disciples don't understand that. They've misunderstood every time Jesus has predicted this. 
And so we get this kind of comical scene where James and John come up and ask Jesus a question. Now, to understand the scene, you have to understand a little bit of Jesus, uh, his followers, and the way that they were structured, okay? So Jesus had the inner 12 disciples who followed him just about everywhere, traveled with him as he went from village to village in Galilee, uh, preaching and teaching and healing and casting out demons. Above the 12, Jesus also had some other followers, some kind of co-centric circles, but the 12 were kind of his core guys, okay, his, his tight-knit group. Now, within the 12, there were three, an inner three, that were even closer than the 12 to Jesus. Um, these were his closest friends, his closest allies, and they consisted of James and John, who you see here in this story, and then also Peter, uh, who will become the leader of the early church. Now, James and John, you should know, are brothers, Okay, so if you're in an alliance of three and one of the alliance members is your brother, you can guess probably there's going to be a closer relationship there. Um, James and John are called at times the Sons of Thunder, which is a cool nickname. Um, Peter's Rocky from Jesus, that's what it means in the Greek. Um, when I was a kid, they called me Alfalfa. I've never had a cool nickname. Um, we have been studying Revelation, though, on Tuesday evenings here at the church in and we saw this last Tuesday that Jesus promises the church in Laodicea that if they're faithful to him, he's going to give them um, the new earth and the new heaven, a white stone with a, a nickname on it that only they and him know about. Um, and so there's this promise that I've always uh, resonated with that one day, if, if we're faithful, if, uh, if, if we, we keep on following and worshiping, that we'll have this intimate kind of um, nickname relationship with Jesus. Um, James and John and, and, and Peter already have this. They're the inner three. But notice, they come in for a power play without Peter. Okay? So the two of them come in, and they're asking for positions of power. They know they're on their way to Jerusalem. In their mind, Jesus is not going there to die. He's going there to set up this earthly kingdom. Think of it a lot like a presidential cycle election. Okay? It's all in our minds. It's a four-year process in America. All right? Um, this would be equivalent to someone going up to Hillary Clinton or Jeb Bush or Donald Trump. Um, bless all of them. Um, and trying to sneak into a position of power, right? Like, hey, will you promise me when you're elected that I could be VP? Can I run with you as VP? Or will you promise me that you might be the Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense or this or that or this or that? They think Jesus is about to get this very powerful position, right? As the king over the world, exercising with the sword, with authority, coercive power. And they want the right hand and they want the left hand. They want number one and number two. Now what's funny is the way that they ask this question. Um, so notice they don't outright ask Jesus for these positions of power. They preface it with another question. They say, Jesus... Will you do for us whatever we ask of you? <laughs> Which is a very sixth grade way of asking a question, right? Um, the way I tend to get it nowadays is, you know, a student, a child might come up and say, I want to tell you a secret, but you have to promise me not to tell anybody else. The answer is, well, it kind of depends on what the secret is, right? The secret is you cry at romantic comedies? Yeah, I probably won't tell anybody. <laughs> Just keep that between you and me. If the secret is you're going to like kill somebody, I'm probably going to call the cops, right? I mean, it depends on what the secret is. Um, James and John are trying to kind of maneuver Jesus into the right position before they ask the question. In Matthew's gospel, the story is told with a little bit of a twist. Instead of James and John immediately asking Jesus, they actually ask their mom to go ask Jesus, which I think is worse. <laughs> hey, mama. We can ask Jesus a question for us. And so she goes and asks, hey, can my, can my boys be number one and number two? And she's like, all right, we need to talk. Everyone needs to talk together. And so he responds back to James and John. He goes, I don't think you know what you're asking. 
would be number one. And number two, um, I don't think you understand the implications it has. If you want to do that, you're going to have to drink the cup that I'm going to drink. You're going to have to be baptized the way I'm going to be baptized. Your fate will be very much the fate that I'm going to be receiving in Jerusalem, which I've tried to communicate to you very clearly, but you seem to still not understand. And they very arrogantly right, go, no, we're in. Right? We're, we're on board. We can drink that. We can be baptized that way. Uh, and Jesus, perceiving they still don't understand it, prophesies a bit over them and says, you will. I mean, you're going to end up drinking in this cup, and you're going to end up being baptized like this, but not when I'm in Jerusalem. We know this is true. James is one of the first Christian martyrs. John um, is exiled to Patmos to die as a witness on the island there. Um, so they do follow Jesus on his path, but not, not in Jerusalem. In fact, if you look at the Gospel of Mark, who actually ends up sitting on Jesus' left and his right in his time of glory in Mark's Gospel are the two thieves. How does Jesus fully exercise his kingly power? Well, according to Mark, it's when he dies. It's when he gives up his life. And who's there on his left and his right? Two criminals. In the kingdom, things are different. Power positions work in different ways. The seating at the table gets rearranged in ways that you might not expect. But Jesus says, okay, you will. You will drink this cup. You will be baptized this way. And then, all of a sudden, there's drama. The other ten hear about this. You can imagine, okay? So when I was a high school teacher, uh, I would get this a lot. Classes would predict that they were my favorite. Um, <laughs> and then there would be infighting in classes or... So this year, I had always kind of have a wall on my desk where students can like write a note or draw a picture, and I'll hang it up and put it up there. And it started out as class rosters. So a couple of my students here remember this, and they just write a roster of their class. And then it got to like a student write a list of my favorite students and put it up there. <laughs> and then, of course, that list would get replaced in the next period with another list and another list. And I went out of town, or I was sick, I don't know, I left, I was at the school one day, and I came back, and everything was torn down from my wall. And I was like, what happened? Because a lot of that's really sentimental to me. I mean, there's some pictures and notes and things like that. And they're like, oh, it went down yesterday. I'm like, what do you mean it went down? <laughs> like, this does not sound good to me. It sounds like my job went down yesterday. And they said, someone had written some kind of note about how my sixth period was not my favorite class. And sixth period, a certain individual in sixth period blew up and, like, became a spider monkey and was like climbing the walls, tearing pieces of paper, like was a human shredder, basically. Um, and that kind of went out of control. And so I was kind of like, oh my gosh, this needs to calm down. Um, if you were, you're definitely not my favorite anymore. Okay? <laughs> the disciples are having this same kind of game, right? Who's, gonna, who's really going to be on these positions of power? Who's really on the inner circle with Jesus? Um, I might be able to imagine Peter stirring this up among the other disciples. Peter's been left out. He might have thought, hey, we were in this together, which is a high school musical song for some of you. Um, for the rest of you, don't worry about it at all. Don't watch it. Don't look it up. Um, it's not worth your time. If I was at a middle school camp right now, I'd be getting so many laughs, but I'm not. <laughs> and that's okay. Um, yeah, please, oh my god, there's no way I can I can't recover from that now. Okay. Peter in the inner three, James John go without him. And so the other ten start to get indignant. This is first century drama. Okay? This is this is infighting in the group. In case you were under the misimpression that Christians always get along and never have disagreements or tension, um, this is your first clue that that's not the case. 
There's never been this golden age where you've had a group of Christians who always saw everything eye to eye and never had some awkward conversations and never had some personality conflicts. It happened with the earliest disciples. It happened with the earliest churches. The church in Corinth, Paul writes 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Um, they were in factions, um, debating and fighting, and fighting with each other. They were um, leaving out the poor out of communion. They were... Um, one of them was sleeping with his mother or mother-in-law. I mean, it was the church gone, it was the XXX church, church gone wild. Um, comparatively, we're a pretty healthy church. Um, almost all churches probably in Sugarland are pretty healthy compared to the church in Corinth. Um, I've seen, unfortunately, a handful of times people start to get involved in the church. And then they, they hit that moment where they see a little bit behind the scenes. And it's like, wait a minute, it's not always flowers and Googles. Like, y'all aren't, y'all aren't agreeing with each other, and y'all have different ideas, and, and there's some personality conflicts, and then they walk away, sad and, and kind of disappointed. And I want to go, well, I know what you're expecting. This is how it's been from the beginning. If you put sinful human beings together, there's always going to be some conflict. The beauty of the church is they're able to exist alongside that conflict. Whereas the rest of the world would divide out of that conflict into new nations or tribes or groups. In the church, we stay at the same table, even with our disagreements, even with our our problems with one another. Um, But even from the beginning, there's been drama. So the ten are infighting with themselves. Jesus, as a great leader, decides to use this as a teachable moment. So he calls them all together and he says, all right, you're thinking about status and position all wrong. Okay. You should understand this by now, but let me try to explain it to you one more time. He says, you know how the world works. In the world, then, as in now, you try to climb up the ladder. You, the goal is to get more authority and more power and more resources so that you can leverage all of those things for your advantage. You want more money. You want a better job title. You want more authority. You want more stuff. You want more strings to be able to pull. So you can leverage that to your ability so that you can use that to manipulate others and get them to serve you. They lord it over each other's. Jesus says, though, but take that concept and flip it upside down for the kingdom. In the kingdom, it makes no sense and everything falls apart, but this is how it works. And and he gives us this kind of poetic two-step of a, a line here. He says, whoever wants to be great needs to be a servant. Think about that. Whoever wants to be great in, in my kingdom wants needs to, to be a servant. And then he steps it up one line a little bit higher and says, whoever wants to be first, and if you really want to go for being first in the kingdom, become a slave to all. Lose all of your rights. Lose all of your privileges. Not just to a close handful of people around you, but to everybody you meet. He says it's a sliding scale. The more you are less concerned with your own life and your own privileges, and the more you are leveraging whatever God has given you for the benefit of others instead of yourself, that's how you go up in the kingdom. That's how you start to look more and more like the king himself. How you start to act Christ's life. One of our core values here at the church is serving selflessly. It's kind of built into our DNA. We, we want to be people who um, take the blessings God has given us. Because in this room, and in first service as well, among our congregation, um, there are lots of gifts. Um, we have some with lots of money. Um, we have some with um, lots of power. Um, we have some with lots of time. We have some with lots of skills. Um, and what we want to do is collectively and over time shape ourselves so that we, we stop seeing those things as tools to use for us 
and start seeing them as, as tools to use for other people. Does that make sense? That whatever skills we might have, we would leverage it not for our good, but for the good of others. And whatever money we might have, we would leverage it not for our good, but for the blessing of other people. Whatever time we would have, we'd leverage it not for our good, but for serving um, and, and benefiting the community around us. And in that way, we become more Christ-like. And that way, we actually paradoxically increase in the kingdom. It's almost the opposite of the American dream. Jesus is saying, try to go down the corporate ladder. Um, the dream, right, is to have more and more people serve you. In my dream, as a kid growing up, I wanted to be a psychiatrist because I saw a psychiatrist and I knew how much money he made off of my parents. <laughs> and I thought, this is a great way, one, to help people, but two, and mainly, to make lots of money. And I just would imagine all the things I would never have to do if I made that kind of money. I never wash my clothes. I never mow my lawn. I ne- in my mind, I was going to have a servant that brushed my teeth. I don't know about that one. I was never going to brush my teeth. I would. They get brushed. It's not a nasty thing. It's just a... I, I was going to have all this power and money and, and use it to leverage it, right? To have people serve me. She says, no, no, no. You're thinking about it the wrong way if you want to be great in the kingdom. In the kingdom... You want to serve as many people as possible, not be served as much as possible. At the church, we have a few kind of unsung heroes. I mean, we have great examples of this throughout our our congregation. Um, I won't point them out too directly, um, but for instance, we have a handful of gentlemen who are high up in the corporate world, um, who work for big-name companies, who throw a lot of weight around, um, you get a lot of things done in the world. And, and what they do every weekend is they become janitors at the church. And they clean up all of our messes. And any kind of sense of cleanliness you get today is from their work yesterday. Um, these people don't have to do that. Um, but these are people who have kind of ingested this teaching of Jesus. Um, my goal in life is not to get to a point where I never have to serve anybody. In fact, it's to find unique and creative ways to serve people, even when that is kind of against where I'm at in life, with my job title, with my situation, with my family, this or that. Um, I want to find these unique opportunities to serve other people. Christians, I think, should, we should, as a community, be trying to assimilate this teaching into our lives and into our hearts, have it sink into uh, ourselves. If you want to be great, be a servant. If you want to be first, be a slave to all. Then over time, hopefully, we start to slowly and surely lean that way on the spectrum. We start to be more selfless. We start to be more serving. We seek to be served less and less. Um, Jesus gives a unique take to leadership here. Um, I'm not sure this model can fly in the um, capitalist CEO world of America. Um, I don't think right, necessarily CEO can implement this and still keep their job or have their company be a healthy company. Um, I did uh, as part of a leadership program at, at the school that I used to teach at, and, and there was always this conflict here, right, between these leadership principles from these great businessmen and then the leadership principles from our God who got himself killed. And there's this kind of paradox here. One's getting you to the top of the ladder. The other one's getting you into a grave. It's having you lose everything that you have. And, and probably getting killed because of it. Um, I was just invited a couple days ago to, to come on board with this um, kind of upstart corporation that's doing this leadership training. They want to make it uh, have a section of it that is Christian leadership training. And all I could think about was like, I just don't think you're going to like my ideas. I don't think <laughs> like I'm willing to work with you. I just think it's going to clash a little bit. Uh, for some of yourself on leadership, and it's great. I mean, it's practical. 
but I'm not sure how it would fit in with passages like this. I feel like we'd be kind of going back and forth at each other. I'm not sure it would be a good business model. And Jesus gives himself as the ultimate example here. He says, look, look, here's the model for you. It's me. It's my life. I'm the son of man. God incarnate come to save humanity. And I didn't come so that you would all be my minions and just serve me and fan me and bring me food. I came not to be served, but to serve. To give my life so handsome. We are, we become like what we worship. It's just a deep spiritual principle. And the more we worship Christ as one who came not to be served, but to serve, the more our hearts and our minds start to be shaped in that direction. And we start to realize our purpose is not to be served, but to serve. And Jesus says here, he, he, he kind of gives a description of his death. He's going to give his life as a ransom for many in the Gospels, they very rarely explain the mechanics behind Jesus' death. That is how it works. Why does Jesus dying on the cross bring salvation to you and I and his resurrection from the grave and all those things? They just assume it. It's good news. It's a story. Um, here, though, we get a tiny glimpse into maybe how Jesus saw his, his vocation functioning. He used the word ransom. Think of a hostage situation. You've got a child who's been kidnapped. Or you've got a group of people in a bank, and they're being held hostage, and there's this ransom note, right? Give us this, and these people will go free. Um, Jesus doesn't say anything beyond that, except to imagine that his death is somehow going to satisfy something, which then sets his people, who were previously enslaved, free. And theologians have taken that and, and interpreted it in all kinds of ways over the years. Um, Anselm and people after him have said, what we're enslaved to is God's wrath. It's his anger. Um, and, and the way out of that is that God's honor or anger or wrath needs to be satisfied. And Jesus, by dying on the cross, satisfies that on our behalf, and we're free. Almost the image of uh, a father pointing a gun at someone and the son jumping in front of the gun, right? Jesus took the bullet for us. Now, this model has been criticized. Um, it seems to separate the Trinity a little bit. Um, it seems to make God the Father look very angry and God the Son look very compassionate. And, and people who come to faith in this model sometimes have this hard time approaching God the Father, but appreciating Jesus the Son a lot. But their first encounter with God the Father was, he has a gun aimed at you. And so he's kind of this you know, wild card. He doesn't like you. Um, the only reason you're still around is because someone else took the blame for you. Um, and so it's been, it's been criticized. Um, others, the early church, suggested what we were ransomed from was actually Satan himself. That when we fell into sin, we sold ourselves into slavery to Satan. And who Jesus is paying ransom to is the devil. He's giving his life over to the devil, which he will then be able to escape from in order that the devil frees all of his people. This model has also been criticized, right? It seems to give a whole lot of authority to the devil. It seems like God is stuck um, behind the power of the devil and has to make this kind of sleight-of-hand deal with the devil, right? Um, perhaps a better model would be what Paul seems to do in his letters. He, he personifies sin and death and says God's people are enslaved to sin and death. We're in this system that enslaves us into these constant patterns of self-destruction, eventually leading to eternal destruction. And what Jesus frees us from, what he ransoms us from, is, is this kind of enslavement. Again, Jesus doesn't go into any of that here. He just gives us one metaphor to play around with. I give my life as a ransom for many. We know from the scriptures that God the Father sends the Son out of love. Um, that, that we have to be reconciled to God, not God being reconciled to us. It's not that God was angry at us and Jesus jumped in front of a gun. No, Jesus came because God loved us and wanted us to be forgiven. It was the Father's idea. It was his mission 
Jesus wasn't acting. But we also know that in this very deep sense we've been enslaved to wrathful ways, to wrathful things, and that Jesus' death, however it exactly works out mechanically, frees us from that. It transforms us so that we might break out of the cycle of sin, we might break out of the cycle of destruction, we might live with God and live for eternity. So you, you have this conversation um, with the disciples. Jesus gives himself as the ultimate example of this kind of servant leadership in the kingdom. And then lastly, you get this healing. The last healing in the Gospel of Mark, this blind beggar. Notice that um, all the words um, used, the word call is used multiple times here. This seems to be imitating the call that came out to James and John, among others, to follow Jesus. And the blind man follows. He correctly accepts this call and follows. You could compare this story to the rich young ruler. Whereas the rich young ruler had eyes, but yet couldn't see, the blind man can't see, but has eyes to see. He, he truly understands who Jesus is. When the rich young ruler throws his cloak off and runs to Jesus, for a blind beggar, it's very likely the cloak was everything he owned. And if you would imagine yourself in that situation, in a crowd, throwing a cloak down on the ground without being able to see, it's most likely giving up the cloak. You're probably not going to find it later. Ironically, the, the blind man actually does what the rich man couldn't do. He gave up everything. It was a little easier for him. He just took off one item. He gave up everything and, and came to Jesus, and he ends up following him. The blind man is our example, our model to imitate. One who correctly responds to the call of Jesus. And he, in doing so in the story, he gives us this phrase, Lord, um, he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He repeats it a couple times. We should, we should probably imagine it in the original scenario as him screaming this kind of desperate cry, trying to be heard above the noise of the crowd. Over time, though, it's become this contemplative prayer that Christians have adopted in their lives. When perhaps you come to a point in your life where you don't know what to pray, or it's hard for you to pray. There's this rich tradition in Christian history of, of, of Christians just repeating these words to themselves in some form or fashion in their mind. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a simple phrase that kind of captures the whole big idea. Who Jesus is, who we are, what he's come to do how we should respond and receive it humbly, gratefully. The blind man here, again, is this disciple to imitate. He's the last one to follow Christ. Um, and he's the, the second person in the Gospels, other than demons, to correctly identify who Jesus is. Peter does this earlier in his confession. He says, you are the Christ, but then he misunderstands it. The blind man here, though, now gets it right. He says, now you're the son of David, you're the king. And I'll follow you. Now, for you and I today, in Sugarland in 2015, we have pressure in every direction pushing us away from the things that Jesus is teaching his disciples here. We have pressure pushing us towards going towards our own ideas of greatness. We have pressure pushing us away from following Jesus and, and, and proclaiming who he is and faithfully following like the blind man. And in that environment, times of worship, small group communities, consistent times of prayer, maybe even just simple prayers, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner, should work in our lives to slowly and surely shape us into more Christ-like people. Um, we don't live in a neutral world. 
if, if you were just to sit in the world unaffected by anything, you would not come to this, this view of, of servanthood. You would not come to this view of following Jesus faithfully, even if it led to a cross, even if it led to death. So we've got to, to arm up together. We've got to remind ourselves. We've got to encourage ourselves. We've got to challenge ourselves as a community. This is who we're supposed to be. This is who Jesus has called us to be. And, and while we're not there yet, and, and maybe we'll never be there perfectly, um, day by day, month by month, year by year, we might be able to say, we've improved. And in 2016, we might say, I'm serving a little bit more than I did in 2015. In 2017, we'll be able to say, I'm, I'm serving a little bit more than I did in 2016. And all of this, of course, by the help of the Holy Spirit, that gives us the strength and the courage to obey Christ and follow after him. So this morning, as we come to the table and continue to worship, uh, I pray that you would um, keep these things on your mind, that you would remember as we receive communion that this is the, the Son of God whose life was ransomed for us. He came not to be served, but to serve. I pray that we'd remember that it's not only what we've received, but it's a model for us to emulate in the world. And I pray that like the blind man, we might receive his grace as sinners and might commit ourselves to following him into the world, no matter what path that might take us on. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day. We thank you for the scriptures that you have given us. I pray that you would help us to 